The sermon text this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I think I can speak for most of us that we um, probably love these rags to riches stories. We see it all over the place. We see it in our, in our kind of fairy tales with Cinderella. We see it in the cinema with Slumdog Millionaire or Rocky. Uh, we, we see these rags-to-riches story, even in real life, with an Oprah Winfrey. I mean, she goes from rural Mississippi to being having a net worth of over $2 billion, or a Dolly Parton who goes from rural Appalachia, and she ends up with Dollywood. You know, we see these people that kind of start in the lowest rung, and they just climb to the dizzying heights. I think we love it because we kind of imagine ourselves kind of wanting to do the same thing. It might be in education, it might be in business, it might be with wealth or, or even popularity or sports. But we want to see ourselves kind of moving up, kind of our own rags-to-riches story. Well, Paul kind of gives us that today. Now, Paul kind of shows that the Christian, you know, last week we saw that, that it was through faith in Christ alone which makes one a child of God, that if you believe that, if you truly are resting your faith in Christ alone, there is this rags-to-riches story. You see it in our text. Look at verse 23. He says, uh, before faith came, so he's talking about a period of time before faith came, before Christ came. And then look at verse 25, because he says, but now that faith has come. So you see this kind of changing of the guard, the changing of times. What this is reminding us is that before faith came, you were under law, you were a slave, you were burdened, you were condemned. But now that faith has come, now you're a son of God. You see the rags that you once wore, and now you see the riches that you now have. So the Christian has his or her own kind of rags to riches story. And that's how we're going to look at this text, just in two parts. Uh, trying to understand what it means that we once wore rags. We once wore, we were slaves to the law. We were burdened by it. We were being crushed down, held down. And then what does it mean? I love when Miriam read it. You know, she's, we're sons of God. You know, we're part of the family of God. We're heirs to the promises of God. I mean, you look at the things of this world. You've they may be glittery and shiny and tempting, but those three little treasures, it's rags to riches is what we've done. So let's look at the rags. Let's make sure we stick our head in this bucket deep enough to really understand where we've come from. Look with me at 23 and 24. It says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. 
in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, before faith came, so it's a time qualify for us. Before faith came, I see that as kind of apposition to Christ. Before Christ came and declared the gospel, he says we're held captive. And remember now, we learned last week how, you know, with Abraham, he believed in the promises of God. And God gave him a covenant. God gave him promises. But then we also see in the redemptive history that God gave the law to Moses. And the bulk of Israel's history was lived under the law, under the law of Moses. Now, Paul's talking to Galatians. They're not from Israel. So how does this apply to them? Well, you know, in Romans 1, we realize that the nation of Israel was under the law of Moses, but all of the world of Gentiles was still under the law that God has written upon our hearts. In Romans 1, he says that we've all been guilty. We're all without excuse. So he's speaking here to our lives before coming to faith. Now, before faith came. Before anyone comes to faith, we're living under the law. It may be the Mosaic law. It may be the, the law of our own standards. But he's saying we're captive to it. What's he mean by that? Well, look at the word he uses. We're imprisoned. It's like a jailer. The law is like a jailer to us, holding us in place, holding us in custody. Why? Because we can't keep it. We're always guilty. The speed limit sign reminding you, you're breaking the law, you're breaking the law. It, you, we go through this all the time. We've all felt that burden. I'm not doing what I should be doing. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. There's this kind of imprisoning, this held in custody. I can't get out of the predicament I'm in. I cannot live in a way that I can expect him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We haven't done well. We're imprisoned in the law. People are bound up. They're guilty. They carry shame. They carry this sense of foreboding. That's the way people live. Under We can shake it for a while. We can ignore it. We can drink through it. We can out-sex it for a time, but it comes back. It just comes back. But Paul gives another metaphor for the law. He talks about the law as a guardian, a guardian for us. Now, a guardian, some of your translations, the older ones, may have schoolmaster or tutor. There's really nothing teaching about the guardian. The guardian, rather, was a servant in a household that would take these children, maybe from infancy to maybe 16-ish uh, kind of maturing years, and they would be making sure that the kids stayed in line. Uh, they would be taking them to and from school. In ancient pictures, they would often be seen with a cane or a stick just to keep them in line. They were disciplinarians. And what Paul's saying here is that the law was like a disciplinary, showing us, trying to keep us in line, showing us the way to life, but we couldn't live there. The, these tutors, these guardians, they didn't change the heart of the children. They may have kept them in line, but they didn't change them. So when you look at these two metaphors, a jailer and a guardian, the law never made us righteous. It just revealed to us that we weren't righteous. It was to show us our helplessness, that anybody here, even listening now, to think that you can appeal to God and approach God and bring your bag of goodies to prove to him that you are a good and faithful servant, he's trying to run that right out of the mind. It, it's just not there. It's not possible. That's the nature of life before faith came for all of us. But you see, there's something going on here at the end of 24. He says... So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
what we see in this law is that the law couldn't save, but it can point to one that can save. So within the law, you have the sacrificial system. You have these commands of God that you're to bring up these, these offerings so as to make atonement for your sin. There's a clear recognition we're all sinners. We need these animals to give their lives so that we can come before God. But they had to be repeated every year, so they didn't really bring forgiveness. But they did show that God had a plan to deal with our sin. You know, you think about the lamb being brought for our sins. Then, of course, you think about Jesus being the Lamb of God. So the law does not save, but it prepares us for the promises. It shows something better. And so what it reminds us is that the law was always planned to be temporal. It's now obsolete, now that faith has come. Until Christ came, we were captives of the law. But now Christ came, we find justification. So you see that the law was kind of like was kind of enclosing us in this prison that we cannot deliver ourselves from, <clears throat> preparing us to see we hunger for a pardon to come from the Lord, to come from Christ. So Charles Spurgeon speaks about the law like the black dog, the black dog that chases the sheep to the shepherd. That's what the law does. The law is like, a, it's like the burning heat sending the weary traveler to find shade under the great rock. That's the law. That's the life we lived before faith came. That's the, that's the law. That's the life of rags. Constantly not measuring up. Constantly failing to do what even we know we should do. Even the things we want to do, Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. That's the law. The law's good, but the law can be misused. So in the past couple of years, I've been getting into some woodworking I'm only at a kindergartenish level, but you know all the tools that I get tend to come with these big danger signs and warnings. Everything has warnings before you. On the blade, there's a warning. There's always warnings, and but the warnings are there not to tell me that the tools are bad. They're just dangerous. You can lose your finger pretty easily. Tools are good. They're really great for what they do when you use it right. When you don't use it, they're really dangerous. That's the thing about the law. If you look at the law as something, as a means to approach God, it's dangerous to you. you know, any parent here knows that you can civilize a child with laws, but you can't change them. Laws don't change us. What the law does is it, it actually, reading the law, reading the scriptures, it actually increases sin. It increases sin by revealing to us how much of a sinner we really are. So you think about the guy that says, well, I've never committed adultery. Said, but you have lusted after that woman in the office. You've thought about her in sexual ways. Or the woman that says, well, I haven't stolen. You say, but, but you have lusted after the husband of that friend of yours. You wish you had a life like she had. That's what the law does. It, it, as we begin to understand it, we begin to see how deep it goes. Th this law that if we try to approach God by the law, it's, a, it's misery. It's fatiguing. You're always on that wheel. You're the hamster, constantly turning, never going anywhere. It's never changing. You get exhausted. You're beaten down by the law. When, when people say to me, well, uh, the reason I can't buy Christianity is I, it, I can't handle all the, the rules. Like, if you think Christianity is defined by the rules, you don't, have, you don't, you don't got Christianity down. 
All the other religions of the world, maybe, but not Christianity. <clears throat> how do you approach God? So when you, when you understand your relationship to God, how do you view him? What, what characteristics do you use? How, how do you feel? Do, do you feel like I am as close to God as I've done well this week? <clears throat> that is the intuitive way of approaching God. Have I been right enough? Have I done this enough? Have I not done this again? And if that's how you approach God, then you're going to be wearing. And this is what Paul's chiding these, these Galatians. Remember back in chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now perfected by the flesh? Do we claim the grace of God to save us, and then we constantly relate with the rest of our lives to God based upon what we do or don't do? See, the good use of the law. So the law is dangerous, but the law is delightful. Let me show you how. And this is the unique, kind of counterintuitive way to look at God. God uses the discomfort from our failure in the law to drive us to see delight in Christ. Jesus uses, God uses the discouragement that we have when we fail time and time again so that we run to Christ to find justification and forgiveness and hope. John Stott says it this way, he says, we cannot come to Christ to be justified by faith until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. You have to understand that. So many people want to tell me, I'm getting better, I'm doing better. And I'm like, you're not getting it. You got the cart in front of the horse. That if we keep thinking we're getting better in the sense of some higher improvement towards God, then we're missing a gospel of grace there. We're, we're saved by grace, but we're continued to be saved by law. And it's wearying. So Jack Miller was a, uh, he's since died, but he was a Presbyterian minister theologian. He had a line that I've used a hundred times, and many of you have read it. He says, cheer up, you're worse than you think. He says, cheer up, you're worse. You, 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 to be really happy, you've got to really understand, you're actually worse than you think you are. Uh, that, that When you hold your morality, no matter how polished up and pretty you can make it, when you hold it up to the holiness of a perfect God, yeah, it's, it's swimming to Hawaii. It, it just won't work. But he said you can cheer up because the grace of God is greater than your sin. You can cheer up because the justification offered by faith in Christ is sufficient for us. This is the rags. This is the ending of the rags here. Do you see in 23 and 24, he's before faith came, this is what you were. But now that faith has come, do you see that the, that the principle of law is now replaced by a, a principle of grace? Now we're shifting to the riches part of the story. We're shifting to the good part of the story. You were burdened by law. You lived under just always being just shy of adequate. Now you can convince yourself otherwise, find the worst person in your network. I'm better than them. But you never go to the other side. Nobody ever compares themselves to Mother Teresa or someone of that nature. We always go to the other side. No, the... the the principle of law is replaced by a principle of faith. And this is where the riches come in. There's three riches. You see that we're now sons of God. That's the first. Secondly, we're part of the people of God in the kingdom of God. Thirdly, we're heirs to the promises of God. These are the blessings that you see in 25 through 29. Now look with me at the sons of God. Look at 25 and 26. He says, but now that faith has come, 
we are no longer under a guardian. Can you say hallelujah? Thank you, God, for that. Thank you that I don't have to live by the failures that I've accumulated. Those don't define me anymore. They don't identify me anymore. I no longer live according to the guardian. We're sons of God. Sons of God. Is this how you see, do you see God as a father? Or do you still see him as a judge, a taskmaster? Someone with a book with the page and your names on it. He's just noting the things that you have not yet done or the things that you did. He says we're sons of God. What's remarkable about this is it's through faith. Through faith we become sons of God. Now, you ladies may be saying, well, what about me? Well, let me explain what he's saying here. Uh, the saying sons of God, he's speaking about the son, the law of progeniture, that, that firstborn gets the whole inheritance. He's saying that all of us who come to Christ by faith have the full rights as that firstborn son, men and women. That's incredible. He's speaking to the women who have come to faith. You have all the rights of the firstborn son. Women were unallowed. It was unlawful to give them that same law of progeniture. You know, pe people will say Paul's a misogynist. He's a woman hater. I say, you, don't, you haven't read the Bible. Paul is incredibly egalitarian in raising up women to be equal with men. Full rights as a firstborn son. And if you were a third-born boy, Carol has a grandfather who is not the firstborn in a family in Ireland. Everything goes to the firstborn. So he hightailed it over to America and made a life here. He wasn't going to get anything. But we all have rights as the firstborn son. We're sons of God. Is that incredible to you? You have to think about it. And this sonship is secured through faith. See, God is not a universal father to the world. God is sovereign king and ruler over all things, but he's not a universal father. He is judge, but he's not a universal. We can't say we belong to the children of God. All people can't say that. Only those who have been adopted through faith can say, he is my father. Do you realize that? He says it right there. He says, for in Christ Jesus... For in that, that participation, that union with Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. So you join in communion with Christ through th faith by believing that Christ is the Messiah who has come, the heir of Abraham, to bring forth to me salvation. Rooting your trust and your hope in him is what makes you a son or daughter of God. And the beauty of this new relationship is pictured in 27. Look in 27. For as many of you, as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, have put on Christ. Only those who have been baptized in Christ Jesus, this idea of being plunged into the water, you're plunged into death, you're dying to your relationship to the first Adam. You go down with him in death, because now you're in union with him, you're in Christ Jesus. That Greek word, ice, you're into him. It's like you're a pickle in a barrel, you're in him, you get plunged down into death, and then you're brought up to life. You're washed, you're clean, you're refreshed, you're made new. Now you're no longer a son of the first Adam. You're a son of the second Adam. You're in union with Christ. You're now one with Christ. This is the picture he's given to us, that we're now sons of God by faith. And baptism pictures that for us. How do you look at God? When you think about God, do you think about him as a father? 
But sadly, many still, when you think about God in your mind's eye, people with legitimate faith look at him as a judge, as a taskmaster, as noting the wrong things in your life. Not as a father who's forgiven, who's accepted, who's loved you. You know, I, I love it with little kids. When kids particularly are younger and they don't, they're not aware of themselves as much, you know, they can be a terror. And then they just come right up looking for dinner, asking you things. They, they, they're not even hesitant. I mean, they can ruin your day. And then at night, oh, they're coming right up to you, asking for things, loving you, hugging you, like nothing happened. It, it's almost like, do you know what trauma you just put me through? But, but they just come, why? Because you're their dad, you're their mom. They, they, don't, they just look at you as loving them. They, they don't understand everything. And I, I think we don't understand everything, what it means to be sons and daughters. That's how we come to God. How do you view God? How you view God will explain much of how you understand Christianity. That's G.I. Packer's point in knowing God. A few months ago, I reminded you of this great quote. It's very helpful. It's very clarifying. He says, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Now, I, I recognize that in a group this size, that many of you have had a poor model of father. Or maybe you didn't have a model at all. And so this is a greater challenge for you. But I, I want to ask you then to seek God. Ask him to open your eyes to the beauty of his fatherhood in your life. You know, when John writes to the church in his first letter, he says, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. What great love has God lavished, poured out upon us that he would call us sinners saved by grace, his own children. We need to rejoice in this. Friends, this is the glory. We're getting to the sweet part of Galatians now, being reminded that we're sons of God. That's the first rich. That's the first treasure in the riches. But look next with me at that we're part of the family of God. Look with me at 28. Because in 28 we read, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Now, you've got to admit, it's a little odd when he's speaking to this new identity, now that you're sons, now that you're daughters of God. He's speaking to a new identity that we have, and he defines it by all these negations, right? You're not this, you're not that. Oh, by the way, you're not this and you're not that. And just one more time to make sure you get it. You're not this and you're not that. It's an interesting way to do it. Uh, many people take this text out of context and they'll say, what God's doing here is he's making life fluid. He's, re he's removing all role distinctions. It's multiculturalism. It's everybody's going to be one. It's kind of this, kind of like a secular utopianism. We're all going to be together. We're going to be one. We're going to be the same. It's this great uniformity. We're not going to look at differences anymore. Well, I think Paul's saying something much more profound than that. I mean, we can come up with that stuff. What Paul is explaining is that these distinctions, they are irrelevant for your value and place in the kingdom of God. 
In other words, the distinctions that we have within our cultures, the distinctions that we have within our genders and social classes, they are irrelevant. They don't matter. The identities that you and I strive so hard to build and to find ourselves in, they don't matter. They just don't matter to God. He's not impressed. He says there's neither... He starts with the cultural stuff. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Now, remember the context we're in here. These Judaizers, they were teachers from Jerusalem. They were coming, and they were saying to these Gentile believers, listen, we love that you love Christ. That's fantastic. But listen, we've got to add a few extra things. We've got to make you more Jewish so that you can really fit into the people of God. Your culture is inadequate, so you've got to become more, you've got to do the Jewish things to be part of the people of God. And Paul's saying that's, that's crazy. You're in Christ now. Being in Christ means these distinctions are irrelevant. That means that the cultural distinctions that we bring to this church, whether you're from you know, African, Western, Asian, these distinctions that we bring, it's not that they're unimportant. They are, actually. They're part of God's creation. It's not that they're not significant. They are. But they're just irrelevant in terms of having a place in the kingdom of God. Now, you know, this is a hard thing to do. It's, it's hard to get over cultural differences. When Carol and I went overseas to Austria, we were always taught in training uh, it, to just remember that when you live in a foreign country, just say to yourself, it's not wrong, it's just different. And so we get over there, and we find out trying to find a place to live that nobody, many of the places we looked at, they generally don't have showers, they have bathtubs. We're used to showers. Eh, okay, that's, it's not wrong, it's just different. And then we found out that a lot of our friends didn't use that bathtub, but maybe once a week. And we thought, well, yeah, that's not wrong. It's just different. And then we found out that, no, they don't really, it's not easy to get a dryer over there, at least when we were there. And everybody hung their laundry out in December and January. It was like taking a piece of cardboard off the thing. And had to bust it up a little bit to put it on. And we started saying, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's both different and wrong. It, it, <laughs> It was hard to get over these cultural differences. We had to learn to laugh at our own cultural stuff. <clears throat> no, he's not saying eliminate cultural differences. He says celebrate them. You know, I, I think I've learned more from our African brothers and sisters in this church about community and generosity outside my family. I, I was raised in a very individualistic context and I've learned greatly from them how to love outside the family. They expanded a bit. They've taught me that. I've been instructed by them, and I've profited by it. I celebrate that. So he's saying there's neither Greek nor slave. But notice he moves right to social distinctions. He says there's neither slave nor free. <clears throat> what he's saying here is it shouldn't matter to us. If a person comes to church with a little means, they shouldn't be looked down upon as if they're less of a person. And those who come in with greater means, they shouldn't be shunned as if they've done something evil. In other words, the distinctions that we make of birthplace or position in society or rank or educational level or job title, those things are irrelevant to God and this community called the church. We are the kingdom of God. We're the visible kingdom of God. These don't matter. Banker or bricklayer, we're in Christ. Plumber or physician, we're, we're in Christ. That's the distinction. And, and I want to bring something up here, too. You notice that Paul doesn't go against slavery here. Now, I, I do want to just creep into this area just so that I, I can touch on it. 
Paul never really seems to abolish the institution of slavery. Now, we have to understand first century slavery was different than the American, well, I should say the Western world's context. It was different. They both were terrible. They both were wrong, but they were different. And what Paul's doing here, and you see something of his incredible insight into the power of the gospel. He didn't go after the institution. He went after people's heart because he knew that if you were changed by the gospel and you would say, neither slave nor free, that would ruin slavery because you couldn't own somebody that was equal to you. You wouldn't do it. And so he, he went after the institution of slavery by going after the heart, preaching the gospel, knowing that once the heart changes, then you cannot live loving Christ. Although some tried, that one cannot hold truly to being one with this brother and owning him or her. So you see there's no distinctions in social class. Then he goes to, I think, one of the most revolutionary. He says there's neither male nor female. This is incredible. This is so radical. For this time in this culture, we don't get it. We've got to climb back into the context to understand it. I mean, women have been oppressed forever. They usually, women and children, are the ones that bear the greatest brunt. Don't think getting off a boat that's sinking women and children to the boat first. That's a Christian ethic. That's not what has been embraced throughout the history of the world. They've been oppressed. And here he's saying there's neither male nor female. Now, a lot of people want to say, well, this means role distinctions are now finished. That's not what he's saying. He's going back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. He created them, male and female he created them. They're both equal, co-heirs of grace, bearing the image of God together. That's what they are. They're equal, co-heirs of grace. They have distinguished roles, but they're equal. So these differences, what he's saying to us here is these, these differences of culture and social distinction and gender differences. We don't want to flatline these. These are not the things of which we develop an identity. We are now in Christ. This is our new identity. I know that's a struggle for us. We wear clothing. We act certain ways. We drive certain cars. We live in certain areas. We want to do these things as part of our identity maker. And he's saying, it's irrelevant to me. Just a heads up on that. It won't be that way in the kingdom of God. It shouldn't be that way in the church. It will be that way out there. So you have this incredible point he's making. He's not calling for uniformity. He's calling for a unity within diversity. Don't eliminate the differences. Just consider them irrelevant as it relates to how we love one another. See, when he says that there's neither... Greek nor Jew and slave nor free and male nor female. He's really saying that we're marked. The Christian community is marked by a loving unity overlooking all these different differences. You know, Paul said this kind of in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, so we will no longer regard any man according to the flesh. We once did Christ, but we do no longer. Therefore, if any man, any woman be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. The new has come. It's a new order here in the church. We are the colony of heaven. We are the outpost of glory. We are not the, the fullness of the kingdom of God, but we do image it to the world. And so we image it by our loving unity amidst the differences that we have. 
You know, Francis Schaeffer was a Presbyterian theologian back in the 20th century. He wrote a book called The Mark of the Christian. And he said these words. <clears throat> he says, if an individual Christian does not show love towards other Christians, the world has a right to judge that he or she is not a Christian. So when we act unloving to one another, the world, he's saying the world can judge us. I don't see it. And he's pulling that out of uh, John 13, 34 and 35. If you love one another, they'll know you're my, you're my disciples. But then he said something more, a little more cutting, a little more profound. He says, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son and that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. That's from John 17. This idea that both the mark of the Christian and the mission of the Christian is going to be advanced by our loving unity among our differences. He says it's the final apologetic. It's the final wall. It's the final thing that we can say to the world. No, it is all true. You see it right here. Now, this is a timely word for us. You know, Gallup just had a poll that a church membership, it says church membership, not church attendance. Church membership is below 50%. First time in 80 years. The reasons. Well, the pandemic, mask policies, vaccines, and our different views on that. Politics, issues of justice, some theological tertiary differences. These things are, are causing people to fracture. Secondary tertiary issues that should never separate the body of Christ. I'm in a couple circles of pastors, and uh, most pastors have said this has been the most, pastors have been in the, in the ministry for 30 years, 40 years, most discouraging times of their life. Challenging. Because of the way we're fracturing over these tertiary issues. And here we have, we're sons of God. We're one these differences that we may have on these issues. They're fine for discussion. They shouldn't lead to separation, and they shouldn't lead to a lack of love for one another. You know, Charles Spurgeon speaks about this when he preached. He talked about George Herbert. George Herbert was a, um, a high churchman. So from the Church of England, 17th century, kind of the, a priest. Now, Charles Spurgeon, of course, was a 19th century Baptist preacher in London, and he was a low churchman, didn't get into all the high church stuff. And here's what he wrote <clears throat> about George Herbert. They didn't know each other, but he's using it as an example. He says, where the Spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ constrains me no more to think of him as a stranger or foreigner, but as a fellow citizen with the saints. Now, I hate high church I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan, but I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul, and I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ. As George Herbert did. And I do not ask myself whether I shall love him or not. There is no room for the question. For I cannot help myself unless I leave off loving Jesus Christ. 
I cannot cease loving those who love him. I will defy you if you have any love to Christ to pick or choose among his people. It's a beautiful word. We're one in Christ despite these differences that we may bring into this place. So we see these treasures. You're sons of God. You belong to the people of God. But look at the last one. You are also heirs to the promises of God. Look at 29. And if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Such a simple line. If you're his, if he's yours, you're his offspring. Not according to the deeds you've done, according to the promises that you've believed in. If you're Christ's, and if Christ is a true heir of Abraham, and you have faith in Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham. Not because of the Jewishness that you picked on, picked up. Not because of the behaviors that you've emulated or that you're now. If you look at those things as bringing you in relationship to God, you've missed the gospel. May God have mercy on you if you look to those things for help. Those things may display your love for him. They may be fruit born by the Spirit of God dwelling within you. But if you're Christ's, you're his children. You're his offspring. And notice what he says, that you are heirs, according to the promises. You're heirs. Well, what are you going to inherit? Have you given thought to that? And most of us do. I mean, when someone, when someone dies, you think, is there an inheritance? You know, when you're younger, you're always hoping that you're just kind of in some line on some person's will, and a truck is going to dump money on you. You just hope something might be coming your way. You know, the nature of an inheritance is future. But there's a present joy looking to it. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. You are heirs of the promises of God. What are you going to inherit? Well, last week, Miguel kind of explained in part that it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, it's going to be a new Eden, reformed, remade, renewed. We're going to be different in it. Th th this inheritance that we have is to be with God, to see him in his fullness, to have the stain of sin removed, to have relationships that have no bitterness, have no fear, have no threat to them, have joy, to cause this world to flourish, to, to use our gifts without the hindrance of the thorns and the fallenness of this world, to walk in a world where we're not living in the valley of the shadow of death, but we're living in the light of the sun. That's what we're going to... How, how often do you long for that? How often do you think about that final day? You know, th this is the problem with the temporal blessings that we receive. Boy, they can get right here, and we start losing sight of what's just ahead. The very blessings that may have come to you from God, they can become blinders to you to this longing. To what degree do you long? Do you know that Christ longs for his inheritance? He doesn't have his full inheritance yet. I mean, Jesus is at the right hand of God, but remember, precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. Why is it precious to God? Because he's getting the reward for his work. Jesus is getting, this world is, no, he's not here reigning and ruling in the fashion that he will one day. He's waiting for his inheritance too. I, I, I dare say he's longing for it. Do we long for it? How often do you think about that? This is the fuel that carries us through the valley of the shadow of death. This longing is what drives us to be obedient so that we have something so glorious and so great before us. Paul wrote this in Corinthians. He says, don't lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not, that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. This is what we're longing for. This is what we want. This is what drives us through cancer, through sickness, through troubles in marriage, through financial struggles. It's the longing. This is why it's an inheritance. It's mine. I'm Christ. He's mine. That's it. That's my, I share this with him. And you know you have that longing in you. Even if you're here not as a Christian, you have a longing for it. You know, spread throughout Lewis's writings, or he always spoke about this. He used a German word, Seinzucht. Seinzucht. It's a, it's a German word. It means yearning or longing or hungering. He uses it throughout his writings. It, it, it's that, that hunger we have for something transcendent, for something different, for something we know there's something more than we have. He says it this way. It's that unnameable something, a desire for which pierces us like a rapier at the smell of a bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the morning cobwebs in light summer, or the noise of falling waters. You know, those things that we experience that we're like, there's something better. There's something glorious. There's something just beyond my sight. It's that longing for transcendence. And I think it's there. You know, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until it finds rest in thee. God placed that there. He set eternity in our heart. That inheritance is to capture our imagination, to cause us to hunger. For those of you uh, who are here, who have, you're not Christ's. You, you haven't come to God through faith in Christ. You're still looking at your life. God is not your father. That's the warning. There is not a universal fatherhood. He is only your father as you repent of your sins and you decide, I will put all the trust of my soul, safety of my soul into the hands of one who has died and been raised for me and will live for him. We're going to look in chapters 5 and 6. There's plenty of fruit that will be born from that life. This isn't just believing you're in great shape. It's believe, be changed. And then he begins that work in us. But for those of you who are Christians here, can you rejoice with me that we are no longer under the guardian? We are sons. We are daughters. We are part of the people of God. And the differences that we have, let's rejoice and celebrate in those. Let's unify around them. And we are heirs. We are people give way to that longing. You know, Lewis continues to say that if you desire for things that you have no experience of, then it might imply that you might have been built for that, that you were created to achieve that very experience that you're longing for. Let's rejoice, and then let our rejoicing be seen in the loving unity that we have in this church. Let's just take a moment and ask God to make these truths plain to us. These words of mine are simple. The Spirit of God needs to press them to produce change in you. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.